This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast where we talk with authors about the most recent monograph in the field of folklore studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the podcast. Before beginning, it will be helpful to, to discuss briefly what is meant by folklore as a field of study. Folklore privileges the informal over the institutional and the vernacular over the cosmopolitan. Folklore may look at traditional forms that we popularly associate with the term, forms like folktales and festivals, riddles, proverbs, epics, and many more. Folklorists, however, are also defined equally by their theoretical and methodological approaches, as they are by the topics of their research. And their research can examine a variety of forms that are less commonly associated with the field, including craft traditions and stand-up comedy, as well as the narratives shared by online communities or people sharing the same occupation. It may include oral histories and even college football fandom all in hopes of better understanding the diverse and changing social worlds we inhabit. Today, I talk with Dr. Halb Shippers about Sustainable Futures for Music Cultures, a volume he co-edited with Dr. Catherine Grant and published with Oxford University Press. This fascinating work, the culmination of an extensive, multi-sided, collaborative project, examines questions of cultural sustainability in music cultures around the world. The findings, meanwhile, have important implications for our understandings of the sustainability of expressive cultural practices beyond music itself. I hope you'll take a listen to this really fascinating conversation that I just had. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, an occasional podcast in which we talk with authors of the latest monographs in the field of folklore studies. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Thurston, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Halb Shippers about a volume he recently edited with Catherine Grant. The volume is entitled Sustainable Futures for Music Cultures, an Ecological Perspective. Halb is Director of Smithsonian Folkloids Recordings in the Smithsonian Institution's Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Halb, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Tim. To begin, I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you identify as an ethnomusicologist. So what's your ethnomusicology origin story? Um, I'm not sure if I um, identify as an ethnomusicologist. I okay. mostly identify as a music researcher because I've done so many different things. But a bit of background would probably help. Um, I, when I, was about to, I grew up in a, in a musical family, which the Times of India once called a symphonic family in the country of the windmills. So I grew up in the Netherlands and... Uh, my father imbibed, my father inspired a great love of music for me. He was a label manager for a big classical label. 
And as I was growing up, all my friends were playing, playing music. My parents deliberately did not force us to uh, play piano because they had had traumatic experiences being forced to play music like many people of their generation. And But by age 16, I got in touch with Indian classical music, which was rampant across uh, Europe as part of the sort of hippie flow. But by the time I started in 1975, probably the... The most intense incense and hash fumes had sort of evaporated and we could see the music for what it was. So um, I was probably the only person of my generation who never um, smoked hash in Amsterdam. But I loved the, the music that I came across. And at one of the concerts in the Mozart Aron Church in Amsterdam, I got a, a, a leaflet saying, you can start sitar lessons there, there and there. And as a 16-year-old, I went there, met the person who would become my, my guru, my teacher, and started learning this fiendishly complicated music. And as I did, I realized that um, a lot of the things that I thought, everything I'd learned about music was not really quite as true as I thought it was, because I grew up in an environment of Western, class, Western music and Western classical music, and Indian classical music works quite differently. Notation does not play a role of any importance. Uh, improvisation within very strict rules does play a major, major role. Um, it's a music which is much more joyful to make in many ways than, than, than Western classical music. So... I got this wonderful sense of cognitive dissonance, which has been a, a light motif throughout my life, and started seeing a different a music that that was based on a completely different precept, but at the same time was completely valid. So it's not that Indians just hadn't discovered how to do Western classical music; they had a system that had been around for a very long time that that worked for them. So I started writing about music. So my first book in 1984 or something was about uh, Indian music for the listener, where I tried to introduce people that liked Western music already to how to listen to a true Indian music. So not to look for counterpoint and, and, and harmony, but to look for the subtle intonation, how, how we people explored these melodic frameworks and how they used rhythmic frameworks in, in a way that was quite different from, from how Western music worked. While Indian classical music was actually sitting within society in pretty much the same way as Western classical music. So it's it's a kind of the music of the cultural elite. It's not the music you hear on the, on the street corner in India. It's, it's the music you hear heard in the courts and in the houses of, of educated people. So I found it really quite interesting and I found it very interesting to educate people or to share, but rather to share my experience with other people of discovering this this other music and the joy that could be derived from it, and that pretty much became the leading force in in, in my life, such so to, to um, a kind of fearless pursuit of beauty and uh, and making other people understand how beautiful things can be. And after I engaged with Indian music, I engaged with many music from 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 the rest of uh, of Asia, and then with music from the world of Islam, and then I got into African music. And with all of those, I heard so many things, and I met so many interesting musicians. So I pretty much spent the last forty years sharing those ideas. And as I was doing that, uh, one of the things I was very interested in is how learning works, how people learn music. So my first book with Oxford University Press, Facing the Music, is about learning processes across cultures. And without setting out to do that, it, it kind of broke down a lot of 
preconceptions we have about how people learn music from how we've organized it in the West over the past few hundred years. And that became quite, quite interesting. But as I was talking to musicians across different cultures, and you will recognize this, we all recognize this, everybody complains that nobody wants to listen to the music, nobody wants to pay for the music, the radio doesn't do it, the government doesn't care, students don't want to learn. And as I heard the different versions of that through very, very disparate, different cultures from, from mariachi bands to airway musicians in Ghana and, and Jalis in, in Gambia to people that made the music of the Ashik from, from, from Anatolia. Um, all of those different pe people came up with these very similar complaints. And my thought was, is this really the problem or are these the symptoms of the problem? And that led to my research in, into to sustainability and, and trying to understand bat, better why certain music music seem to be very vibrant and other music seems to be much less vibrant. That that's really fascinating. Thank you. Um, so so I guess that's that's a nice segue into uh, the book project itself. Um, so this is part of a large multi-year project, uh, multi-sided project. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about sort of the project that inspires this book. Um, yes, definitely. So um, after I've been speaking to, to many people about, about the, the things we just discussed, I um, visited Vietnam um, in 2006, I think. Uh, I was at a conference about training professional musicians, uh, which was my, my field of, of research at the time. And... Like in many conferences, there was an afternoon that was dedicated to exploring the environment. So uh, there were options of going to a temple and there were options of going to a silk factory. And I usually find those excursions too touristy and uninteresting. So I asked some of the teachers who were sitting, uh, some of the younger teachers who were sitting in the room, um, is there anything I can do that afternoon that will make me really understand Vietnam and the musical life of Vietnam better. And they were a bit taken aback by that question, but during the coffee break, one of them came back and said, hey, would you like to meet my 78-year-old Hachu teacher who lives in the village just outside of Hanoi where we were? And I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. So while everybody else was getting on the bus, um, I went into a taxi with, with, uh, with Hue, and we went out to this village um, about 35 kilometers outside of Hanoi where we met... Uh, Master Chuk, her, her um, teacher of Kachu, and as I was seeing some of the, the, the transmission process, where she was, they were doing a lesson, and as as I was, as she was explaining about her music, it turned out that Kachu had been quite a big music in all of Vietnam, and particularly the north, starting in the villages, and then it moved to the to the cities. And uh, there was a single street where there were like 18 kachu houses. It was sort of a, a, a beautiful chamber music of sung poetry with a, with a long neck lute and a uh, praise drum uh, accompanying the music. And that uh, music slowly got associated with other pleasures, uh, like many musics. It got associated with a courtesan tradition, which became a more prostitution-like uh, tradition. And when the communists came to power, they said, this is decadent music, it all has to stop. Um, and they sent the musicians, the remaining musicians, back to the fields. And then for decades, there was no practice of that music. And then in the 90s, people started to, to think, maybe Kachu is actually one of the, the important musics that we have. Um, Tran Van Cave, one of the great musicologists from, from Vietnam, uh, played a major role in that. 
And so here I've, I found a music that had no performance uh, um, format anymore, no format for being transmitted, no audience, no prestige, no listeners, no money streams, um, only a few very uh, um, aging practitioners. So I thought, so this is a music that's devoid of all the things that normally support a music tradition. And probably because of the starkness of that, the idea came into my mind, can we describe all these different factors that uh, inform a music practice uh, as a kind of ecosystem? So rather than saying, this music is not doing very well, let's throw a few hundred thousand dollars at it, do a festival, and hopefully everything will be okay, which we know is actually not really quite working. Um, can we try to really understand all the different factors that influence the sustainability of this particular practice and see which ones we can influence so that we can turn around its fate so that it doesn't disappear altogether? So that's pretty much how, how the, the, the project came about. So I guess that that brings me nicely into my next question, which is so the, the book itself that is the result of this project uh, begins with two chapters that sort of lay out some of the important definitions and theoretical um, uh, debates that you're going to be that that the work intervenes in, uh, and I think perhaps talking a little bit or perhaps a lot about this will be useful even for specialist listeners. Uh, so let's start with the first chapter, which is your chapter uh, entitled "Sound Futures: Exploring the Ecology of Music Sustainability." Um, in this, you seem to be introducing sort of this ecological approach, and you very, very briefly touched on it uh, just a second ago. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to sort of go into a, a little bit more detail about how about this ecological approach and and how um, how the ecological approach to cultural sustainability works. With pleasure. Um, since the beginning of this century. The awareness of intangible cultural heritage, which includes folklore um, or much of folklore, has um, increased enormously uh, thanks to uh, the a number of UNESCO declarations and conventions, a whole series of them, uh, the most important one being the, the 2003 Convention on Intangible Cultural Heritage, which led to the, uh, the masterpieces pieces of intangible cultural heritage and uh, rather later the representative lists. Uh, I think neither masterpieces nor representatives are the right words for it, but, but um, certainly the fact that UNESCO cared so much has, has raised awareness uh, beyond anything we could have imagined before. Um, but while the convention itself and, and the documents supporting it talk about cultures as living traditions, because they're implemented by nation states, which is the nature of what works through UNESCO, what we've seen happen is that most of the traditions of intangible cultural heritage that were to be protected have come to be looked at as artifacts. So rather than as something that is part of a community and fed by a community and kept alive and vibrant by a community and changed by the community, it was seen as this particular form of is going to uh, be preserved and we'll sort of pounce on it and we'll put a big glass bowl over it and everybody can look at it and see how beautiful it is. But it's a bit like picking beautiful flowers and putting them in a vase and, say, and hoping that 25 years later they will still look, look as beautiful. So the, this, what I call the artifact factor-centric approach to sustainability is just looking at something as an object rather than as a result of a process. So what... Um, we try to do is to step away from 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 just the actual practice. Uh, I usually talk about a music practice or an art practice, to be, 
in, in preference over a style or a genre because a single style or genre can have many different practices. So, And when you want to have a detailed view of its sustainability, you just need to look at um, opera in large opera halls or opera um, in public spaces because they're completely different beasts. So we started looking at that um, and... Well, there are many ways of, 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 of looking at the main major forces there. We identified five different domains that, that seem to be really important for almost all music practices and pretty much uh, important for practices across uh, um, the different arts and folklore. One is how the tradition is being handed down, so what we call music learning and teaching, realizing that some music is learned without being formally taught. So the, the whole teaching aspect of things or the learning aspect is, is, is an important one. Then, of course, how the art form interacts with its communities is very important. It's uh, very important how the, um, the art form interacts with infrastructure and regulations. In some cases, there's very little needed for, for a particular art form. Uh, it can just be a dirt floor and people singing. Um, in the case of Western Opera, you need a $60 million building and a huge orchestra and uh, and very expensive sets and a flight tower. So uh, that ranges from needing almost nothing to, to needing hundreds of millions of infrastructure. Then there's um, media and the music industry. So many art forms have some kind of um, commercial aspect, which makes sure that, that that money comes to people. So whether that is through impresarios or people paying for CDs, or whether it is through a uh, people giving goats to people that make great paintings in a village, or um, just spreading the word through uh, the World Wide Web, which of course is, is is become an incredibly important factor in the sustainability of almost all traditions. And then the fifth of the domains is. Um, Context and constructs. Context is pretty straightforward. So, in which kind of context is this particular art form practiced? While constructs is a bit more complicated and has to do with all the things in our minds that steer how we engage with a particular practice, um, which includes things like prestige. If we think something is prestigious, we probably want to go to the concerts. We probably uh, want to pay money for the CD. We probably want to learn it or have want our children to learn it. Well, if something has very low prestige, none of those things happen. But it also includes cosmology. So where do we sit this, see this practice sitting in, in our idea of how the universe is put together? It has to do with prejudice. It has to do with gender bias. It has to do with post-colonial values in the case of many traditions. So all in all, we, we across those five domains, we identified about 40 forces that seem to be working on every music practice and the nine teams that 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 worked on the on the on the project uh, went into a particular tradition, ranging from kachu that I just mentioned to mariachi music, ranging from indigenous Australian women's music to Western opera, from um, Indian classical music to Ghanaian ewe dance drumming, and describing all of those traditions uh, by answering about two hundred questions across those forty-two forces we got a very enlightening picture of why particular musics were doing as well or as badly as they were doing. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this is that, so you have these first two chapters where you do this definitional work, what is it called, the ecological approach, and then another chapter, the second chapter on sort of sustainability and, and application. Um, and then each of the remaining chapters looks at one of those traditions that you've just 
discussed. Uh, and each is sort of structured similarly uh, to uh, around those five different domains, right? Um, and I was wondering if you could say, like, how did you come to, could you say a little bit more about how you came to uh, this way of structuring the book and uh, and of structuring your project? Because it seems like you could have done one chapter on each of the domains and talked about how they work in different societies, but you've chosen to look at different music cultures and and identify each of them across those those five domains or, or describe them each across those five domains? I would argue that we did both. So um, in the introduction, uh, Tony Seeger says that you can read this book both horizontally and vertically. So you can read case study after case study, and then that, that means you go vertically through the, through the five domains. You can also read it horizontally. So you can say, let me see what people say about transmission processes in each of those traditions. So we... Because it's a printed book, um, inevitably there's only one way of, of, of uh, if you read it linearly, that, that, that would take you through each of the case studies. But a number of people have already said, hey, I'm really interested in media and the music industry. So I just read the media and the music industry across those, those nine case studies. And it's really fascinating how they relate and don't relate to each other in different ways. So, in fact, the book... Um, a book, sadly, is something that, that is linear, and we know that linear is not representing what the real world is. So um, the, the website, in that sense, is actually more truthful. So the website has, has you can both read it through uh, the domains and you can read it through the, the, the case studies. So we've made a companion website to the, to the book uh, called soundfutures.org where everybody has access to the key information from the case studies, which was another principle we started from, which is that everything that comes out of this is not owned by anyone. So um, the IP things behind this, which was 18 months of negotiating with various uh, with our uh, nine partners, um, says that uh, all of this is Creative Commons, so all of this is, is usable by anybody for non-commercial purposes. So we, we deliberately made a website that can be accessed by communities who probably couldn't afford the $35 for the for the OUP book, which, by the way, I think is a really good deal for any of your listeners who would want to buy it. Excellent plug. I agree. Um, so uh, I guess I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps briefly run through some of these different traditions that that that, that are discussed, the Vietnamese tradition, the uh, I know you have a uh, and a chapter specifically on Hindustani music, uh, but also uh, you know if you would you be willing to sort of run through each each of these case studies and and maybe one highlight that sort of sticks out to you from them um, very briefly because very briefly and very unexpertly so so. Um... We deliberately chose experts on each of those traditions that so that we could say things that make sense on, on each of them. And uh, the only one that I can speak of with about authoritatively is, is Hindustani music. Um, so I'll start with that one. Um, Hindustani music has been around for a very long time, has had a very strangely parallel development to um, Western classical music. Uh, in that it uh, flourished in the places of worship, and then it flourished in the, um, the courts, and then it flourished with a middle-class audience, and then it flourished internationally. 
um, it's a music which is not under threat. It's 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 quite strong, and it's uh, although it's completely unsubsidized, but almost completely unsubsidized by the government. So while eighty-five um, percent of um, government funding in in uh, most civilized countries, so in 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 Europe and Australia, would go to uh, opera and and orchestras, and without them, they would sort of survive. There's hardly any money going to Indian music, so the communities themselves support that music. So some music circle somewhere in Mumbai or in Lucknow decides we want to have a festival, and they go to local sponsors and they get a little bit of money from different people, and they put on these 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 wonderful music festivals. So that's uh, which I've come to, to see as a, as a strength as, and actually stronger than being being dependent on subsidies. So it's almost impossible to to kill um, Hindustani music. It has a very time-honored transmission system called Guru Shisha Parampara, which is that you really bind yourself to a particular teacher and you stay with them for decades if you can. So certainly for many, many years and, and, and basically you learn from them until uh, they pass. Um, and that's a system that's really honored and has created particular style schools, which, which have been very good for the diversity of the music. Um, in terms of community, there's a um, group of what we call Rasikas, people that really understand the, the music, and they are sort of the, the guardians of the integrity of the music, of the essence of the music, and they are still around. Uh, musicians have always been very clever um, in linking themselves to wherever the money is or wherever the, the sustenance is, whether it is temples or courts or um, houses of courtesans or the international scene. Um, and in many strong traditions, we see that coming back. Then in terms of infrastructure, it doesn't need very much. It's, it's a chamber music, which is either performed in small, small spaces and small theaters or in open fields where they build a, build a stage and make a sound system and thousands of people can come to the festivals. But it's, it's very low in terms of uh, the costs that are there. Musicians are, are widely respected, which is really important. They've been very good in take up of, of media and the music industry. So in the, the earliest recordings I think we have are from of classical music are from 1904, where some of the, the courtesans were, were singing and it's taken on the, the wax cylinder, the 78 RPM records, the 45 RPM records, the 33 RPM cassettes at a very large stage, the scale CDs, and then when things started going online, uh, they were right on top. So type in Hindustani classical music and you get millions of hits of... of uh, of good recordings, so they've been very good at that. But probably the most important thing is that the music kept its self-esteem, although India was being colonized for all this time. In many colonized countries, we see that Western classical music has become the um, most elite music, and Western classical music hardly has, to this very day, hardly has a foothold in, in, uh, in India. So there's a complete conviction amongst Indians that the music is a profound representation of uh, the Indian spirit and how it thinks about the universe. Um, people like Bhatkanda and Palushkar at the beginning of the last century have been very clever in inserting Indian classical music into the rising nationalist sentiment, which led to independence in, in, in the 40s. So Indian classical music has been really, really smart in in, in positioning itself. It also has a structure because it's based on 
time-honored melodic and rhythmic structures, but it reinvents itself with every performance that it can adapt very easily to, to changing environments. So it, it's probably one of the most vibrant traditions we came across. You want me to do the other eight like this, Tim? Um, it's up to you. I think I think that that does give a wonderful introduction, sort of, um, and, and showing sort of okay. Since you've you've chosen one that is very vibrant, perhaps maybe maybe you could also point out one that 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 seems to be a little bit more endangered, and and how that, um, you know, and, and and sort of some of the things that you've that that we can learn from examining a more endangered tradition uh, in light of those five domains. Yeah. Look, I, I probably already, I already spoke uh, in how the project came about, about Kachu in Vietnam, where um, it was endangered across all the things. There was no, no teaching and learning structure anymore. There was no community that supported it. There was certainly no infrastructure for it at all. Uh, it was completely invisible in the media, the music industry. And in terms of constructs, it had the lowest prestige it could possibly have because it was music associated with prostitution. So it started sort of at the, the lowest stage everywhere. What uh, my colleagues, the, the, the country musicians in Vietnam have done very cleverly is to start uh, revitalizing it, not through the, the chamber music version, but there's a version that happens in community houses, which are like temples in, in, in Vietnam. And they started by re revitalizing it there, giving it back the prestige of, of being associated with, with the, the community temple, the neighborhood temple. And um, the main driver of that particular bit of revitalization was a teacher at the National Academy of, of Music in, in Hanoi. And she started in, although of a different instrument, of tiba, uh, another instrument. But she inspired some of her students to engage with it. So she did actually the same thing with Palushkar and and. and, and candidate in India get respectable girls to perform this music again in respectable places so that it gains back respect because uh, prestige is almost everything in, in the sustainability of, of, of arts practices so that's one another one is is uh, uh, which which uh, which is uh, which is a uh, form of female um, women's music in Central Australia the, that case study was done by, by Linda Barwick and Miff Turpin, who've been working in that area for decades and decades. And um, with the, Australia is one of the people that hasn't, just like the US, but has not signed the, the UNESCO conventions, because if we look carefully at what they were doing with their traditional uh, music and language, for that matter, uh, I think the ICTM thinks that 92% of indigenous culture has died since the invasion over the last hundred years or so. Um, Australia was invaded by, um, was just first explored by the Dutch, by, by, by my people, and then um, used as, a, as penal colonies and then in, invaded by, the, by the, the Brits from the 1770s. And the indigenous population was not even counted in, this, in the, uh, the census until the 1970s, until 200 years later. So when they counted how many people were in, in, in Australia, they didn't count indigenous people. Um, there are many stories of many forms of genocide, and certainly cultural genocide seems to be, be continuing. So indigenous people in Australia that want to keep their own culture have uh, a real uh, uphill battle also because to this day the government doesn't really support them very much but and most 
meal culture, which was very much associated with where they were on the land, has disappeared, while many female traditions and women's cultures traditions have been preserved better. And um, Awilia is sung by, by women in, 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 uh, in Central Australia, and they have chosen to not engage with media at all. So when, when we asked all the questions about, or when Linda asked all the questions about, um, do you want to make CDs? Do you want to be on the radio? They said, no, actually there's not so many things that white people have brought us that have been good for us. So we'll just do it between our own, uh, in our own community. And our main concern is to get the new, the new generation to learn, to want to learn those songs. So they have to do these rituals and these gatherings where they try to get the next generation to learn things in, in their perspective this is about so, so, so they don't talk about we'd love to talk about the ecological sustainability of our of our tradition they talk about keeping our songs strong and they're a very important part of their their identity and they basically are looking at, at ways of of keeping a next generation of girls interested in their songs understanding the the, the ritual and the elders steering steer, steering that process but it's it's a, it's a delicate process and as it's not really supported at large by by australia it's it's, it's uh, we will probably see many of these traditions disappearing so i'm really happy that we have a case study about this particular one yeah i, th I thought that chapter was really fascinating the other chapter that really stood out to me was on the Korean samonori uh, and sort of because this is a, a more uh, a more recently emergent tradition yeah yeah Keith, Keith Howard did that that case study and and samonori um, is a tradition that was invented on a particular day in 1973 or 1974 when four percussionists came on came on stage using uh, uh, older village tradition, uh, village percussion traditions. We're creating a, an ensemble of four, four percussion instruments, which became incredibly popular in the, in the forty years since, since. But is now finding itself at a place where, with a limited repertoire, where do we go from here? So, so how do we keep this tradition uh, viable? Because most of the repertoire was, was was composed in a very short period of time, and it's being used within Korea and within the Korean diaspora very widely, but. The, the questions now are what what is the next step for this particular uh, tradition, which I thought was very interesting. We deliberately chose traditions that had very different backgrounds. So the the thing that has uh, probably caught most attention of ethnomusicologists is that I included Western opera in 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 the in the mix of traditions because I see no particular reason why Western opera would respond to different principles than would Indian classical music or, or uh, Samonori. So we made a very similar analysis of the forces working on Western opera um, as we did on, on any of the other traditions. And it comes out as a tradition that's really quite strong because it's very high in the prestige field. So the 19th century misconception that opera is the highest culture that the world has ever produced just because it happened to be music that, that was very highly appreciated and that was a kind of total theater experience that was highly appreciated by the people that had colonial power at the time. Um, but the fact that many people still appreciate opera very much and we see opera houses still springing up everywhere in Asia makes it a very um, strong tradition, but it's also a tradition that's um, 
in need of great resources all the time. So the condition, the, the, the main things that I've t- taken away from John Drummond's study on, on opera is that opera companies need to choose what they want to be. So they either want to be absolutely high-level mainstream operas where uh, every production costs many millions of dollars, or they can choose to choose particular niche areas like early opera and contemporary opera, which, they, which can be performed with much smaller budgets and with particular niche audiences. I guess I guess this is one of the really interesting things is you have chosen old and new traditions. You've chosen uh, very vital traditions and others that seem to be endangered. And you've chosen uh, some that are very well known and others that that are and international and others that are that are a little bit more local. Um, and so in, in comparing all these different traditions in these five domains, what are some of the key takeaways from this project? You've already mentioned prestige as one factor, but are there any others that, that really stand out? What are the best ways to, um, for, for a music tradition to maintain its vitality? Going back to the first half, first, we very deliberately chose this, this wide range of things, and also we did very deliberately chose ones that were not in danger, because if you want to learn how people stay healthy, you don't go to a hospital where everybody's dying and, and, and measure those people. You measure the, the, the vital signs of somebody's health and say, okay, so food, movement, uh, a good spirit are probably the things that keep people uh, healthy. So we, it was not an accident that we chose about a third in danger about a third sort of in the middle and about a third quite vibrant because it's from those vibrant traditions you can learn how you cleverly understand uh how to create sustainability within a tradition so uh prestige is something that many things come back come back to i would say that having a strong community that supports things so no we from the 19th century uh in in the west we still have this idea that the the great artist is uh, an Einzelgänger, somebody who is lives completely by himself, has no frame of reference, and has this brilliant idea, which is either understood or not understood during their lifetime. Um, the reality of, of almost all um, great and vibrant traditions, including the ones of, of the ones where we think they were Einzelgängers, is that there's a, a community around them, and usually these communities exist in concentric circles. So there's the community of um, the, the close, close community of, of musicians that, that people perform in. Then there are, there's the first inner, inner circle of the, the connoisseurs, if you like, so the people that really understand the tradition and value the tradition inside and out. And then you get a sort of a wider audience and then sometimes you get global and digital audiences outside that. And to have those circles of communities being healthy is uh, one of the big drivers for sustainability. Going to the next domain, uh, learning and teaching, you don't need to have institutions that teach music. So I remember working for the National Institute for Arts Education in the Netherlands, where um, somebody from the ministry came to me and say, we need to fix brass band, the brass band tradition in the Netherlands, because sometimes people are teaching that have no formal qualifications. The brass band uh, tradition in the Netherlands, which existed in every single village uh, at that time, was an incredibly powerful tr- tr- tradition that, that supported itself without any external support at all. So I said, why don't you leave it alone? It's actually really, really doing well. So spoiling that by, by giving diplomas to people is not going to make the tradition any better. So 
whatever the system of learning is, whether it is um, learning from recordings like happens in jazz and, and, and rock music or whether it's learning in a, at a conservatoire as you would have, have with with, um, um, uh, with with some classical music or whether it's learning from a private teacher or whether it's learning from just hanging around in bars like it is with country and western, which is another tradition which is not funded and is incredibly strong and vibrant. So rather than saying there is a structure for teaching and learning, see what the tradition is doing, see what it needs, and try and make those things available and happen for them as much as possible. Much the same goes for infrastructure regulations. Infrastructure regulations has the, the hardware component of the, the opera house or the, the stage that you need or the hardwood for, uh, for making a good instruments. Uh, my own instrument, Indian sitar, needs a deer horn bridge, and deer horn is an illegal material in India now, in most places. So that creates problems. So people are finding better ways or other ways of, of, of replacing those bridges, which are very important in giving life to the, to the sound of the sitar. Um, in terms of um, regulations, there are positive regulations, which could be subsidies or tax breaks, and there could be negative ones like censorship and like uh, taxation. There's entire music genres that have been taxed out of existence by um, by governments because they thought, oh, we can make money off that. And then the bar owners that used to have live music just decide to go for cassettes from that from then on. So all of those those factors in, in that area are very important. Then every music pretty much decides how it wants to, to relate to media and the music industry, whether they want to have formal concerts, whether they want to relate to the tourist industry, what kind of online presence they want to have and what kind of financial models are behind the online presence. Running a record label, as I'm doing you now, running uh, Smithsonian Folkways, um, I'm faced with the, the challenge that while tracks, a single track used to yield about 70 cents, whether it was on a, uh, an LP or on a cassette or on a CD or as a download, but now in the streaming era, every track yields about 0.04 cents. So the whole economic model of selling your music through the internet uh, or through what, uh, either in hard copy or through the internet has changed. And we need to respond to those things. Um, and then in terms of context and constructs, what we see with most traditions is that music's recontextualized really, really well. So we, there's a lot of talk about it has to be authentic and in context. But most traditions, if you look at their history, they shift it because they're, they're practical. Musicians are practical. Communities are practical. So when the world changes, the songs change. And a song that used to be a rowing song, which... Uh, can't be used anymore because people have outboard motors becomes a song for something else in, in, in the life of the community. So I think we should underestimate the flexibility of, of most music practices. Um, what we should have a close look at is how many prejudices influence music making. So um, how many uh, things are influenced by gender, by race, by stereotypes, by um, religious connotations that particular things have. And those are things that don't change very quickly. You can't just say in, in an hour, well, from now on, don't have any gender bias or racial bias or religious bias anymore. But being aware where they are in that setting and then creating strategies of creating a situation that's healthy for the music is very, very important. With all that in mind, um... It seems that this project really was conceived with sort of an idea of application. Um, and since many of our uh, since many of our listeners 
won't be working necessarily in music. I was wondering if you could make any recommendations for folklorists who are seeking to assess and promote uh, uh, sustainability of expressive culture um, around the world. Um, If there are any things that you think could be easily transferred from from the the realm of music to, to other forms of expressive culture. Yes, my um, my work here at the Center for Folklife and, and Cultural Heritage uh, at the Smithsonian has brought that that, that question forth uh, with with some emphasis. And just last month, we were sitting around a table with people coming from widely divergent fields, from indigenous cinema, from um, African uh, and African American fashion, from um, arts in in villages, uh, from language maintenance, and Looking at the model as it is represented on the website and other places, this this ecological model with these forces, um, it was really striking how everybody said that this actually works for everything. So um, you would not talk about um, media, music, and uh, um, media and the music industry. You would talk about creative and cultural industries. But do people want to buy this stuff? Is there a network for buying this stuff? Is there an online platform for, 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 for buying this stuff? Do people choose to uh, disseminate things in that particular way? So I just finished an article for the Journal of American Folklore, which will come out later this year, which talks exactly about that, how the model, because it is so generic in many ways, seems to apply almost seamlessly to, to, uh, to many different traditions. Yeah, I, that that was sort of the feeling that I got as well. Um, it, it certainly seems to have tremendous potential. Um, it's very exciting. Um, so, if people want to get involved uh, with the Sound Futures project, um, what what can they be doing? So, you you mentioned the website. Can you um, uh, can you introduce that a little bit more? And what 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 can people get out of the website? And uh, are there other ways for people to get involved? Um, I'd be delighted to talk about that. The website, soundfutures.org, is kind of the community access website, so it's not highly academic. It's, we, we try to, to explain in um, very understandable terms for, also for non-English speakers um, what the core of the idea is. It starts with a... Uh, um, it starts with a animation, a two-minute or three-minute animation that, that shows that uh, we value this, this this huge variety of cultures, but um, we don't always appreciate how the, their their uh, continued existence works. We have this we have this uh, three-minute um, animation that that uh, shows. Um, how the project works, and then it goes into different aspects of it. It explains the the the, uh, the idea of the um, of ecosystems. Then it has information about all of the five case studies, which can be read both vertically and horizontally across the the different domains. And then finally, and probably most interestingly, there's a kind of online um, resource in which people can 
put in whatever their, their musical tradition is and answer a few questions. They answer about 40 questions. And out of that comes a, um, which is a bit like your tax form. So um, are you married? Do you have a car? Do you have this? And then out of that comes you're in this category. So by answering questions, do you have young people ready to learn? Do you have people that come to your concerts? Are you exposed on the media? Is the government supporting you? We create that, 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 that bit of the website creates a little report which helps people reflect on what the challenges might be that they have. And the next stage for the website is to make a link to other um, uh, other similar cases. So the the answer, the work that I've done with the Kachu people in Vietnam was actually inspired by me visiting a Ga community in Ghana who um, created a camp where they were um, flying in a few plane loads of, of German women who wanted to do African percussion. And by doing that, they were able to support two families uh, to make Ga music full time. So we're trying to create what UNESCO calls uh, a South-South dialogue, that people can talk to each other and find examples from each other um, without the interference of a um, middle-aged folklorist or ethnomusicologist in America or Europe. Wonderful. Uh, well, we've taken up a lot of your time today, Hal. Um, so I'll just... Um... Just as as a way of finishing up, I was wondering if you would uh, if you'd tell us a little bit about what's next, both for this project and for you personally. Um, for me uh, personally or professionally, rather, I'm I'm running for yeah, I'm I'm running Smithsonian uh, um, Folkways, which is a record label with a 70 year history, 70 year history, which needs to reinvent itself, much in the spirit of, of sustainability. So we've we've uh, we've sustained ourselves on income from the record industry, uh, the, the traditional capitalist model for a very left-leaning label. And we're in the process of transforming ourselves to a time where physical products, which has been the ma major source of our income, is not going to be the major source of our income anymore. So we're shifting towards more work in education, uh, more work with philanthropy, more work on, on social issues that are really important uh, in this day that, as you've probably noticed even from from across the ocean um, the united states there are many things that are uh, being discussed in the united states about how we think of ourselves as a society and our responsibility to different groups within that society and folkways has always been a voice there so i'm trying to reinvent that ourselves as a, as a major voice in that and in terms of the the research um, we envisage the next stage of the sustainable futures project which will be called sound futures where we go and select a number of, of um, communities across the world, musical communities across the world, and work with them with the model. So the model um, was drawn from our case studies, and uh, it seems to work quite well across our case studies. But the real test is when you go back to communities with that model and say, hey, guys, if we look at your the situation of your sustainability using that model, can we actually make interventions that make more sense than just throwing a bit of money at a festival or at a, at a school? And I just came back from Jaipur in, in Rajasthan, uh, India, and there's a, a group of people that are working on the music of the Langas and Manganyas, which are traditional uh, musicians for many, many centuries. But their music is, is under threat, and they're, use, they're already using this model to make interventions in making that music more viable, um, linking it to the tourist industry, but linking it to the tourist industry without 
um, without losing its essence. So, so how do you keep what the musicians themselves, the communities themselves, consider to be the essence while catering to, to new listenership and, and new audiences? So that's, that was an absolutely fascinating trip where they organized an entire conference according to the, to the domains and uh, they are creating a plan for the next five or ten years now to make that tradition strong and vibrant, which it really deserves to be. That sounds like uh, this this next section of the project sounds really fascinating. It sounds like something that I think a lot of people will be very interested in. Uh, how, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it a great deal. It was wonderful to hear a little bit more about your work. Thanks a lot. Pleasure, Tim. Talk soon.